Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, September 25th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Presented in conjunction with New York Historical's exhibition Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow, historian Manisha Sinha and journalist Brent Staples discuss racial disenfranchisement in the years following the Civil War. Good evening, good evening all. Good to see you. Uh, this auspicious occasion, as I always call this, is my home away from home. I love it here. And I'm here a lot. I guess I've been here going on 20 years now. So remember before this is built. Uh, so thank you all for coming out. And I'm very excited to, to sit with my colleague, Manisha Sinha, a distinguished historian, as I've been saying on my Twitter feed all week. <laughs> and her book on abolition, I, I commend it to you. It was, it's really a revolutionary book on abolition uh, because it actually places enslaved people and black people at the heart of the story instead of at the periphery. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Good to see you. It actually places them at the heart of the story. Uh, and when, whenever I come to this place, I always like to share just a little bit of a personal story with you. Uh, and uh, this is something new, as I explained to Manisha backstage. Not long ago, I was summoned to southwestern Virginia to participate in a trial, which was an expert witness. And uh, I'll, forget, I'll forego the case. But uh, I was met at the trial by one of my white cousins. Because as you know, in Virginia, the first place slaves were introduced in the United States, every black person has a white cousin. And he drove me up to our house. And when I say our house, it's a place where my family was enslaved. And at one point, it, you know, we were granted from the king that their place was 20,000 acres. It is no more. I mean, you, when, it, when in the 18th century, you could see the horizon on our land. He takes me up to the house, rings the doorbell. This is the house where my family was enslaved. It's been continuously occupied since 1792. And I looked to the right of the house, and I almost fainted. Because what I saw there was, in fact, the slave quarters where my very family had lived. A doctor bought the house in the 70s. He saw the slave quarters. He realized what it was, a history buff, and he kept it from falling down. And it's the house that's listed in in the census and there's the place of my great-grandfather. Not my great-great-grandfather. My great-grandfather, John Wesley Staples, was born in July 1, 1865. And he's born just, a, just after, of course, the 13th Amendment, the abolish of slavery. And as I was telling Manisha, when I think of the Constitution, as I did looking at this exhibit upstairs. I think of it in the scope of the country uh, and the scope of national aspiration. But I also think of it in terms of my family, particularly, and in terms 
my family, the black part of my family. Uh, John Wesley's born, and shortly after, white Southerners are outraged by the sight of his family at the polls voting. Right? When black people are elected to state houses, to Congress, even to the Senate, it causes an enormous backlash such that, as articulated upstairs in this wonderful exhibit, the Southern states rewrite the Constitution so that Negroes can't vote and that those who try to vote are lynched in plain public view and mass carnivals of death. We are then into a second slavery after that period of time. And then by the times of the 1960s, 50s and 60s roll around, and we begin to protest and move forward, there was another backlash. We're bombed and shot at. And people leave the Democratic Party to become Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, if we telescope it all the way forward, the country elects the first African-American president. And we're living through, I see the backlash we're living through now as on a continuum with the backlash my great-grandfather experienced Mm -hmm. in the 1860s through 80s trying to raise his family. Um, You've done a lot of work on abolition and Mm -hmm. a lot of work on this kind of history. Um, How do you see uh, this continuum? Mm -hmm. I think that's an excellent analogy, actually, because if you look at the story of... uh, black slavery and freedom, it's also the story of American democracy. It's the story of the possibilities and then the reaction. Um, And, you know, we always think of, or at least we used to think a long time ago, that the story of American freedom and democracy just progressed in this kind of linear way. Uh, It just simply included people who had been excluded before. Um, But actually... It's always a series of going, in, you know, going forward and going back. And unless we really reckon with that, that idea that there's no such sort of exceptional history of greater and greater freedom, that there have been moments of tremendous disappointment mm-hmm. and failure after tremendous achievement, you know, we are sort of doomed to relive that history. Just when you think that you have overcome certain things they arise in different forms. Um, And the story of, you know, the end of slavery and what was achieved in a very short time uh, in terms of black citizenship, um, office holding, black political power, voting, et cetera, the remaking of the U.S. Constitution. You mentioned the 13th Amendment. You know, along with that, 14th, the 15th Amendment, uh, we get new conceptions of national citizenship, um, things that are still being contested today, national birthright citizenship. Some people actually want to do away with that part of the 14th Amendment. Um, people thought of ways and mechanisms to sort of undermine black voting. Uh, it could be, you know, legal stratagems, but it could be just racial terror. And so when you think of concepts like the rule of law, democracy, and all these ideas, I think they're really a part of the African-American struggle for freedom and equality in this country. And unless we really understand that, um, we can always sort of retreat to to notions of um, the way things were 
um, and the way thing, the ways in which we can develop sort of exclusionary narratives mm-hmm. of American democracy, which are not really democratic, to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, killing someone for voting is uh, not exactly the democratic thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the fascist thing to do. Uh, you, yeah. we, we were having, you know, they had to come drag us out because we were having such good chat in the back. Um, you, you, you made a point there about the black American... Oh, the other two thing, too, is that, that my father and his brothers fought in segregated units in World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I was in um, the, the South, I got a chance to interview some older people of my, my father's age, and they talked about um, going to shoe stores, clothing stores downtown, mm-hmm. and not being able to try on clothing because... In fact, Negroes aren't allowed to try on clothing because if it, it was touched the black skin, it was no longer suitable for white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and not being able to eat in white restaurants and having to come in the back door and the whole thing. Um, but you were saying that in this struggle, mm-hmm. you know, the struggle um, against Jim Crow, which starts in the 1870s mm-hmm. and literally continues into the 1960s, mm-hmm. that you think that African-Americans expanded the notion of American citizenship. citizenship. Say more about that. Yeah, so if you think of uh, the ways in which the U.S. Constitution is remade um, at the end of the Civil War, this notion that we should have a national definition of citizenship uh, means that Mississippi can't say you're a black man and therefore you can't vote. Uh, This notion that the federal government is there to guarantee that That's a very new thing. And that comes about only because of the problem of freedom. What is freedom? How do we define it? And for many African Americans, freedom did not simply mean not slavery. It meant equal rights. It meant the rights to citizenship. For many, it meant a certain kind of economic independence, some right to the land, or at least fair wages. Um, So it encompassed a lot of things. And I really think that if you look at the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, you can see how the Constitution and how democracy is literally remade in the United States. Now, of course, there are a lot of people who point to the 13th Amendment and say, look, uh, the 13th Amendment had this exception, right, uh, for people legally convicted of a crime. And this is where it all begins. You know, this is where we can tell the story of uh, the rise of mass incarceration, etc., And I think that's not entirely correct because that was a common English common law exception. When rights are given, there's always an exception made for crimes, et cetera. Um, And the way the South and the Southern states, it was called the Mississippi Plan in 1890, I mean, and became kind of used all over uh, the South. The ways in which they thought up of devices to literally nullify the U.S. Constitution. They nullified the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments Um, You know, whether it is the poll taxes, the grandfather clause, the literacy clause, all the things that you might have seen in the exhibit, or just just violence and terror. My favorite example Uh, of that is uh, not to steal any thunder from the exhibit, which is wonderful. I want to go back and look to it again. One of my favorite examples of that is in the movie Selma, Mm -hmm. when the character is played by Oprah comes. She's memorized... um, uh, the, the, the number of counties and everything in the state. And she says, you know, I've, everything you told me, I've memorized the number of judges, and so now I can register the vote. And the registrar says to her, 
now name the judges. Mm-hmm. And she, at that point, and it, it worked out like that because local registrars had uh, huge latitude uh, to, to deny the vote and deny all kinds of, uh, all kinds of uh, rights. Now, you know, I, the one part of the exhibit that uh, struck me is very nicely handled is the part in the, the, the slides that show the Supreme Court nullifying the 14th Amendment, mm-hmm. uh, the Supreme Court nullifying all kinds of black rights, the Supreme Court nullifying laws that were meant to suppress the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. Um, t- talk a little bit about that period and yeah. you know how that affected African Americans because that basically told African Americans, in fact, that, that they could not rely on the highest court in the land and they could not rely on the rule of law. Absolutely. Um, and how timely it is that we are talking about the Supreme Court. Uh, but, uh, but to go back to the Reconstruction era, um, what is astonishing is how conservative the Supreme Court is as a body in terms of simply uh, either declaring federal laws that were actually quite progressive and revolutionary for their times, unconstitutional, mm-hmm. um, or just limiting the application of the 14th and 15th Amendment, allowing the South to get away with, um, you know, ways to to sort of circumvent the clear intent of uh, the people who wrote the 14th, 15th Amendments, generally radical Republicans, generally radical Republicans in touch with African Americans who were making these demands Mm -hmm. and making these rights. So to give you a couple of examples, uh, think about the... 1875 Civil Rights Act. Has anyone heard of it? No, because the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional. Now, that act was prescient. It was proposed, it was kind of a dying testimony, a kind of a dying uh, legacy, you could say, of Charles Sumner, who was a radical Republican and abolitionist, but very close ties to the African-American community in Boston and Washington, D.C. And he is constantly confronted with the idea that many black congressmen even, um, prominent leaders like Douglas, et cetera, are constantly faced with formal and informal segregation. It's all over. It's like, you know, one black abolitionist once said that it was racism. It was like an atmosphere that surrounded him. Uh, You'd go to the streetcars, you'd be abused or or, or put into the smoking cars. Uh, So Jodah Truth famously said that you know, she smokes cigars in self-defense because she's always being sent to the smoking car. She inhales so much smoke <laughs> that she might as well smoke, right? Um, but, but, but literally, that's, you know, uh, to, to, to be more serious about this, um, so Sumner comes up with this idea of outlawing segregation even before Jim Crow is established. This is in 1875. And the Civil Rights Act is passed because he dies and then people in Congress feel kind of guilty and they said, okay, We'll pass the act as, as, as a sort of legacy for Sumner. And in 1883, the Supreme Court declares the Civil Rights Act unconstitutional because it is regulating social space rather than, and, you know, very narrow legal definitions of the law rather than an expansive view of freedom. Um, so that's just one example. Yes. Um, I was thinking of that um, oftentimes... I realize I'm getting gray now uh, because I talk to people who are distressed about the Supreme Court 
And I say, younger people in particular, I say, yes, it, there's reason to be distressed. But um, <clears throat> there's this long um, Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> it's, the, it's the dodo in Alice in Wonderland when Alice gets wet. And he says to her, let me dry you with history. It's the driest thing I know. <laughs> and, and he begins to nope. recite, you know, dates. And yeah. I, I said, let me just recite for you the occasions when the Supreme Court of the United States, with, which we hold in so high esteem, completely undercut and destroyed the rights of black people. I mean, Dred Scott, not even a human being, you know. Um, there's, you know, yeah. the actual nullifying the 14th Amendment, mm -hmm. essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, and that these things actually go in waves. They actually go in waves. Um, when we, we talked a little bit about uh, this question of the franchise, mm -hmm. you know, we can see when we walk through this exhibit of stairs, we can see um, the people of my great-grandfather, grandfather, my parents' age, um, basically marching for the right to vote and struggling for possession of the franchise. And Frederick Douglass, God bless him, who stands outside on 77th Street, even as a fugitive slave, he drew on the Declaration of Independence and he said to people, this is your sacred text, but it doesn't include me. And until it does include me as a human being, then it's not a valid text. It's really something we have to keep criticizing. And so we have to keep. And, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking, and for your association here, forgive me, uh, James Baldwin, mm -hmm. also God bless him, who said, you know, I love America more than any country in the world. And so I reserve to write the right to criticize her daily, mm -hmm. if I so choose. Yeah. And so when I look at the struggle, Mm -hmm. It's like 30 states now are trying to curtail voting rights. And I just read in our newspaper the other day that uh, as he's pursuant to some new law in North Carolina that they're going to close 20% of the polls in many places. It's actually, you know, a lot of it passes by in the world of entertainment because, you know, we're, we're a highly entertained public. Mm -hmm. It passes by. But this is the same continuum mm -hmm. of the struggle to vote that dates back to the, to the very end of slavery, is it not? Absolutely. I mean, why would you, in a democracy, want less people to vote mm -hmm. rather than more, right? Um, and it, it's, 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 as I said, it is a problem of democracy. It's a problem. You know, people are always stunned when I, when I mention that in the United States, when I try to explain the Electoral College, that we are representing land rather than people. You know, this is not a democracy. And, and I think after the Civil War, they really did try to refashion the slaveholding republic, which mm -hmm. it was. You know, the United States is one of the last countries uh, to abolish slavery. It's, it's a holdout, uh, along with Brazil and Cuba at that time, uh, and to a certain extent, Puerto Rico. But, um, you know, if we, if we think about it in that sense, that, you know, we, we really, during Reconstruction, imagined an interracial democracy, you know, the kind that Douglas imagined, the kind that radical Republicans like Charles Sumner and Thaddeus Stevens imagined, the kind that even Lincoln, towards his death, yeah, is thinking had, of black citizenship. We had to drag him right? to that, though. We had to, yes, he had to be pushed. Yeah. And I think that's where his... Hey, great... wherever you are, we, drew, we dragged you. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the thing was that he was, he, you could drag him. Can you imagine if Andrew Johnson had been president during the Civil War? 
uh, no yes. Emancipation Proclamation, right? It's all relative, um, right? Yeah. yeah, so he's a moderate anti-slavery guy, but he goes from non-extension and colonization, by the way, right. to abolition, and then finally black rights and mm-hmm. citizenship. So I think that's where his greatness lies, in his ability to change and evolve mm-hmm. rather than be stuck to what, ex- to what extent do you think, so, this, yeah. this is a little sidebar, but let's yeah. get into it. To what, extent, to what extent do you think Douglas affected that? I think Douglas, and along with a host of abolitionists, uh, did affect that. You know, that movie Lincoln that everyone saw, um, you know, it, it got certain things right. And, it's, and we historians are always happy you had some history is portrayed uh, in, 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 in a popular film in Hollywood. Um, but I think the problem with that movie was it showed him as an isolated figure, as this kind of mastermind. And yes, he has all these politicians. And yes, African Americans are there. You know, they, they're in the in Congress. What it doesn't get is that it's the abolition movement. You know, it has the black and white abolitionists, men and women, ordinary American citizens, have been contesting for this <laughs> for a very long time. And finally... Uh, the moment of the Civil War, which is a revolutionary situation, uh, gives the government a chance to enact that program. And we forget that, you know, democ- that's the way democracy works. It's not that one great man. It's, it's people who, who are struggling for things in the grassroots, <coughs> in the courtrooms, mm-hmm. uh, like Dred Scott. Uh, there was a vice presidential nominee who could not name the one Supreme Court decision that she disagreed with. So I always have my students in my civil war class remember Dred Scott, mm-hmm. remember Plessy versus Ferguson, you know, remember these these bad decisions. Um, you know, we always think of the Supreme Court. We think of Brown v. Board of Education. And think, oh yes, the Supreme Court was you know on the right side of history. Um, but uh, but I do think that um, without the abolition movement, uh, without abolitionists saying that we are not just against slavery we are fighting for racial equality and black citizenship, that that would never have been on the agenda in mm-hmm. Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look at all the radical Republicans who enact these laws, who think about these things, uh, all of them were abolitionists, mm-hmm. former right. abolitionists. That is Stephen Train. Yeah. He, was, uh, he represented uh, uh, the men convicted in the Christiana riot, the fugitive slave riot. Uh, of 1851, when an abolitionist hall was burnt down in 1837, he sends uh, uh, a letter saying that this is this is an attack on civil liberties and, and the rule of law in our country, and we should be paying attention mm-hmm. to this. So unlike the movie, his his commitment did not just stem from the bedroom, which makes it seem like that. <laughs> well, there was and, that. There was, yeah. they, no, they, were, right. they want to reduce, they they want reduce to it to reduce, sex, of course. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, he was pretty principled in right. his commitment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think we forget that, that that's, that's the way change occurs in this sure. country. But also, you know, walking through this exhibit for about an hour or two, I was looking at um, the sort of recurrence, the recurrence of violence, uh, against black people who assert their rights. Um, and sometimes it, you know, it takes the form of individual just shootings, and sometimes it takes the form of, of, of sort of mass lynchings. And, uh, you know, we, uh, if you haven't, uh, I commend to you if you have not. Um, uh, I spent some time in spring at the new lynching memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. Hmm. And uh, also just a little commercial. I wrote two columns about it. Um, on the editorial page of the New York Times, just Google them. And I commend you to go to that. Because one thing it does, it um, 
it crystallizes for you in the physical form what racial terror was. Mm-hmm. It has all these pylons for each county and the names of every person who was lynched. Uh, thousands of people were lynched, and they're really beautiful uh, sort of uh, steel things that weather to a kind of uh, rust color, and you see it's very somber, and you see them. And I was walking through that exhibit <clears throat> and with my phone out the, the first day, and I'm attracted um, to this one pylon. I had no idea why. Mm-hmm. And I snapped the picture of it, and I put it up on my Twitter site, and all the historians, I'm blanking on the gentleman's name, but all the historians said, that's the one. And I said, one what? And it was a gentleman who was a, a postmaster general, a Republican postmaster general in South Carolina. And um, when, in fact, whites got um, animated about him having political power, they burned down the post office. Then they burned down his house with his family in it and shot at the family as they ran out. Um, so, you know, we were talking about that, um, the idea of this racial terror and violence. Um, and I know this is not even now a popular thing to say, probably not even in this room. Uh, but, you know, there is still a kind of pervasive animus to sort of police and torture the black body in a way. And uh, we've, we've seen it uh, recently and as you know, innocuous ways, if, you've, if you follow social media, <clears throat> the whole year has been episodes of, of black college students sitting in dorm. Someone calls the police because a black person shouldn't be sitting here. A uh, black man is sitting by a pool in St. Louis in the apartment complex where he lives. Someone calls the cops because, really, why should a black person be sitting by this pool? Uh, you know, day after day after day, the idea... Uh, you know, of that the black body has to be somehow policed and has to be contained even when it's making six figures um, is a part of this continuum, don't you think? Absolutely. I think the history of racial terror, domestic racial terror in this country is, is, is really one of those dismal chapters in American history that we haven't, we are only recently, uh, you know, fathoming. I mean, over 4,000 people men, women, and even children sometimes, lynched in the South. Uh, And who are these people? These were really targeted lynchings. Um, As you mentioned, the postmaster general, Mm -hmm. it was literally to decimate the black community and to decimate that experiment in black citizenship. Mm -hmm. So they would target successful black men and women, successful black men, Um, either economically successful or leaders, Republican Party leaders, uh, people who belong to union leagues, ministers of the churches. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was very targeted. It was political killing. Um, And it was also a way to strike terror. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think of the the kinds of things that were done to people in those episodes, in in the lynchings, I mean, it literally curls your flesh. I mean, my students, when they read it, they, they just are horrified because it's, it's reading torture, people being repeatedly burned, uh, stabbed, killed. You think of Du Bois walking down Atlanta, seeing a black man's knuckles being displayed, people taking mementos, etc. This is what when Frederick Douglass says, pray who is the barbarian here, right? Um, so, you know, it's... it's it's really, if you think about it, it's not just like mindless violence. 
It's to put people in their place. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a lot of criticism sometimes of black leadership as, as you know, too bourgeois maybe, maybe sort of imitative of white norms, et cetera. But actually what really irritated hardcore racists, including the Ku Klux Klan and the Knights of White Camellia and whatever fancy names uh, they chose to give themselves, uh, was exactly the successful black man or woman. They would target those people, whether they were politically prominent or economically prominent. So you can see that this is, this is a way to completely make black people aliens in the lands of, the, of their birth, sure, right? Sure. Treat them as aliens. And so you talk about this, you know, the black body. I mean, why would you call the police for, you know, a, a person napping in a general common room in a dorm? Mm-hmm. I mean... It's, it's really quite shocking if you think about it. It's, like, it's the way in which um, black bodies were policed under slavery, under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Um, you could be a, a, any white person, and if you suspected that somebody was a fugitive slave, you could set up a posse comitatus or call the local federal marshal and have that person remanded back to slavery. So this notion that policing black people is something that's it's part of kind a certain kind of uh, privilege of being a white citizen in this country. It comes down from slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, of course, it's a very dismal story. There's a lot of resistance to this too, and I think it is important for us to to keep in mind all the people who resisted, not just African Americans, but even you know white abolitionist allies, maybe sometimes entire towns in the north that sort of rose up in rebellion and said, no, we're not going to do this. So there have been um, instances. So people talk today about sanctuary cities, and I've been invited many times to talk about parallels uh, between the ways in which northern towns resisted the implementation of the federal fugitive slave law. Mm. So we have both these traditions, and I think it's really up to Americans to decide which one is the better one and which is the one that we are going to be talking about and you know, it, it, it sounds uh, sort of very kind of obvious and moralistic, but I think we live in times yeah. where sometimes these things just need to be said. Um, it, it's a lot know, of I, One of the things I, I say when I'm in this room, so forgive me if you've been here before, heard mm-hmm. me say it, um, I, but I think it's an apt metaphor. During history is time travel. I mean, really, you, when you study history, you sort of push, you sort of push yourself back uh, places and, and your whole frame of reference changes um, and because you realize, you know, the, you know, the actual change in context and change in perception. Mm-hmm. But we talked about you, the 13th Amendment, my great-grandfather, God bless him, John Wesley Staples. Oh, by the way, my great-grandfather, was, he was some big guys like, like us. He was about 5'7", five, 5'8", five, 165 pounds. And when I, I used to play on his farm when I was a little kid, he was dead uh, by a decade when I was born, but... His uh, sons still had the farm. His daughter still had it when I played there. And my great-uncle Harry, uh, God bless him, when he came to the table for breakfast in the morning, he had a pistol on the table next to him. He had picked that up from my great-grandfather, who had raised his family of children in the racial terror of the South. And they were situated such that they made very clear, this is our land. These are our three families. We have like 60 acres here. We're not bothering anybody. But if you come here, we're going to give as good as we get. 
And that, in fact, was the kind of resistance you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And my Uncle Harry is like, my cousins, I said, why is she, why is she doing this? Yeah. You know? But they explained that it was sort of a tradition that it handed down to them, you know, yeah. uh, to basically defend themselves Absolutely. in that way. But and we have the 13th Amendment, and I'm, and I'm talking about this because I'm writing a, a piece about this now. I wrote a piece about it in, in August in the Times. The 13th Amendment's passed. Uh, involunt- involuntary servitude is out except for conviction of a crime. Mm-hmm. What we have then throughout the South, plantation owners, southern towns, who are missing the free labor that slaves provided, begin to do a new thing. They begin to imprison people for minor crimes, vagrancy, vague things like vagrancy, and they begin to hire them out to plantations, in some cases on some of the same plantations where their families were enslaved. And this system, um, Douglas Blackman, the Wall, the Wall Street Journal reporter who wrote uh, the book I commend to you, Slavery by Another Name, it won the Pulitzer Prize in 2008. Uh, Douglas uh, says he believes that this second system of slavery lasted from the 1860s in up to World War II, that it was still possible to imprison black people um, in free labor at the, to that time. And I was writing about this on occasion, an occasion we have discovered in a town called Sugarland, Texas, which is uh, southwest of Houston. Um, earlier this year, they were building a school there in Fort Bend County, and the earth mover begins to bring up bones. Mm. And they, someone stops, and they call the state authorities, because you know they have these anthropological antiquities people to come out. And so what they've discovered is a graveyard of former slaves and men and one woman who were in conscripted mm-hmm. into prison labor and hired out to sugar plantations. Mm-hmm. Hired out to sugar plantations. Mm-hmm. So you see the successor form of slavery continues for quite a long time. Absolutely. I mean, I think... Um, White Southerners think about, uh, you know, after so-called redeeming the South for white supremacy, and they're very clear about it. Mm-hmm. If you read the speeches from that time, they don't just say states' rights or constitution. They're saying white supremacy. They use the term quite blatantly, um, and they have all these strategies. This is, of course, the turn of the century that the great black historian Rayford Leo Logan called the native in black history, Right. Uh, you have uh, Jim Crow being the, you know, with Tessie versus Ferguson, the Supreme Court gives the go-ahead. You have uh, sharecropping, which becomes a way to basically cheat black people of all their earnings and wealth and keep them, again, as close to state of slavery as possible. Um, you have lynching, mass racial terror, and you have the convict lease system. And that, as another historian put it, it was worse than slavery even. Because people were literally worked to death. As a slave, you represented capital to your master, mm-hmm. right? You were property. You were wa- valuable property. The average southern farmer who owned one slave was richer than an average northern farmer because slaves were such, quote, valuable property. Uh, but in the convict lease system, the kinds of things that they did within that system, again, uh, sheer torture, worked people to death. 
um, leased them out to plantations and no one cared. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the horror stories what, that you can read about, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from that time period. I've been reading, just I've been reading this week uh, uh, about uh, sugar plantations. Mm-hmm. And sugar, sugar plantations, it was, this was the most dread kind of labor because you know, cotton was heck hard. You bent over in the field. Sugar plantation was the most dread kind of labor. I don't know if you've ever seen sugarcane. It grows 12 to 15 feet high it's above your head. And when harvesting time comes and you had to pulp it to make sugar, you had to get it out of the fields very quickly. So typically speaking, people were um, driven 18 hours a day mm-hmm. in shift. And they had machetes, and they had to sort of cut it down and put it on wagons and bring it in. And uh, if you look at the accounts of it, um, Solomon Northrup, who uh, was kidnapped from New York, near Solomon Northrup, they made a film about him called 12 Years a Slave. Solomon Northrup is kidnapped out in his little slender book, 12 Years a Slave, and he talks about going south and seeing people walk through the fields, slowly speaking, until they dehydrate and fall down and either die or dragged away, doused with water and brought back. Um, so in this um, graveyard we've recently discovered in Sugarland, Texas, we're seeing uh, great similarities to the African burial ground in New York City. I don't know if how many of you were here when we discovered that in 1991. Uh, the archaeologists who, who went over those bodies uh, showed that uh, people had distortions in their neck from carrying off-loading ships, carrying big mm-hmm. uh, cargo off ships on their head, and many of them had... Uh, uh, tendons torn away from the skeleton. Muscles had been torn away from the skeleton because they were lifting heavy objects. And uh, people who were in chronic pain and the people who were essentially worked to death. And many starved to death in New York City, which was the land of plenty at that time. Uh, they're finding those same things among the 95 bodies found in uh, Sugarland, Texas. And I digress this much because I want you to pay attention when these reports come out how similar the conditions are in the bodies of these people who worked to death in sugarcane there to the bodies that we found in New York where people were just literally torn apart in day-to-day life uh, uh, as they sustained, built, and fed, you know, the capital city of Gotham this time. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say... um, One thing I I wanted to ask you, since you teach, and I I used to teach, but I haven't taught in a long time. Um, How, I I, I often see young people, and you talk to them about history, and you talk to them about slavery, or you talk to them about Jim Crow, Mm -hmm. uh, and they sort of, they sort of shake their heads, and they they have no idea what you're talking about, because clearly it hasn't been taught to them at school. They don't know. and I was talking to you, I did a piece recently about, um, about uh, racism in, in the suffragist movement. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were angry with me about that. Uh, but uh, it, I was astonishing how little people knew about that. How, how, do, how do you approach young people when you teach? And what's your finding of how, how, what awareness they have of, of this mm-hmm. period? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I think uh, the problem is the way history is taught many times for, for people is like this sort of rote memorization of facts and figures. Um, you know, we are supposed to be objective and 
we are supposed to be telling a certain kind of history that everyone ought to know and speaks about this common. And it, it differs, right? Uh, there are some people who have had good history teachers and some who had, you know, high school coaches subbing as history teachers. Uh, and that's been a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think um, as historians, we've done quite a bit, especially with the Gilda Lehrman Institute, in terms of reaching out uh, to high school teachers and making sure that some of our research is being conveyed to them. And it's so easy to get at it. You know, there are PBS documentaries, there are, you know, even 12 Years a Slave, mm-hmm. which is actually very true to the original narrative. Yes. Written by Solomon Northrup. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's amazing how accurate it was. I had been using that narrative in my slavery seminar for a long time, and I mm-hmm. said, well, now you all can go and see the movie because it's actually a very accurate reflection of the narrative. Uh, I think it's really important for us to think of our history in more complex, nuanced, and inclusive ways, right? Mm -hmm. That's a simple thing to do. Um, That if you're talking about slavery and you're reading a slaveholder's diary who's talking about his family black and white and how paternalist he is, you should be reading a slave narrative, a person who's actually experienced slavery. And that's how the abolition movement worked. You know, when Southerners said, oh, you know nothing about slavery because... We are really kind and we take care of our slaves and blah, blah, blah. Um, You know, black abolitionists, what I call fugitive slave abolitionists, and Douglas was Mm -hmm. merely one of them, the greatest, but one of them. There were a whole slew of them. Uh, They had the best repost to these people because they could talk about torture. Mm -hmm. They could talk about the backbreaking labor. They could talk about family separations. Uh, in ways that, you know, completely uh, dismantled uh, uh, slaveholders' mythologies about slavery. And I think our students, our young people, are sophisticated enough to be, to be able to read those things and, and to be able to, to talk about it, um, you know, uh, without feeling somehow attacked or invested in a certain project. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot but of times people you, get defensive. But you raise, you raise the first um, point, though. Yeah. See, You raise a very shrewd point about the idea that the the sort of myth of linear progress, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, There is a certain person whose name I shall not speak um, who wrote a book uh, several years ago, a certain... I'm not going to call him a felon. I'm not going to call him that. But uh, he wrote a book, and and he proposed that Negroes should be um, owed white people a debt because... To set them free, that he meant that they emancipated them, and that's the kind of ideas that are in currency today. You know, those are the ideas that are in currency. Uh, And there's one of the big ideas that's in currency in the myth culture, is that you know that that in fact you know Irish indentured people had slavery worse than black people, and I mean, and I see distinguished historians like um, Annette Gordon Reed uh, actually engaging people in social media talking about, you know, the actual truth of slavery and the truth of these situations. So, but it's, it's a brave new world um, where myth circulates uh, easier sometimes than truth, I would say. Yeah. Uh, let's just go to a few questions here. Yeah. Someone writes, how did Jim Crow laws affect the view of America and Americans in countries abroad? Did it have any effect? Oh, yes, it did. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of the interesting sort of facts of history that, uh, uh, that the Nazis, when they were uh, sort of putting together 
an idea of Aryan supremacy and a theory of racial superiority, looked to the South, looked to the Jim Crow South and its laws. And some of the Nazis who visited and wrote letters saying, this, is, this seems a little extreme to us. <laughs> of course, they went to their own extremes. Um, but they actually studied the segregation laws. And a lot of these ideas about uh, white supremacy and racial superiority are born in the South. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about the fall of Reconstruction in this country, you know, the end of the 19th century, this is the moment of literally the global reconstruction of white supremacy. It happens in the South domestically. You have the Spanish-American War and this formal American empire, the heyday of scientific racism, mm-hmm. uh, which is really an American export sure. out to Europe. You have the scramble for Africa, European imperialism. Um, so you can see a, a sort of transnational mm-hmm. uh, story, and it is influenced uh, a lot by what is happening uh, in the South. Even South Africans, by the way, uh, as late as the 20th century, mm-hmm. look back to the Jim Crow I would South say, for uh, inspiration. To, to the person so. who's uh, this question, mm-hmm. I would... Uh, I, 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 I'm going to be as, once again, un, as undignified as to cite myself. Mm-hmm. Um, if you Google a column I did, how the Confederate flag, uh, how the swastika became a Confederate flag. Uh, it's in the Times last year, and it's easily, it'll come up on Google. And it really talks about how Hitler referred to Jim Crow laws, actually at Nuremberg, when they were making the racist state at Nuremberg. They mm-hmm. spent a whole day or two at Nuremberg on Jim Crow in the United States. Mm-hmm. And Hitler said, I think this is the one place in the world that has succeeded in creating the racist state. Mm-hmm. Um, he also said that it was too bad that the South lost. Yes. The lost cause. Yeah. Um, was... Uh, Tanahasi coach correct. Are reparations the only way to, to end Jim Crow? Well, I would say that Michelle Alexander, Mike, you know Michelle Alexander? Mm-hmm. Uh, she's, uh, she wrote a book called The New Jim Crow about the criminal justice system, and she just became an op-ed columnist at the New York Times opinion section. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her book's called The New Jim Crow. It's very provocative about that. Um, <clears throat> well, first of all, I think that to answer this question, and you can have a stab at it, too. I think, clearly, um, we can say that there's, you, metaphorically, there's some aspects of Jim Crow left, right? We talked about not being able to sit by my pool. We talked, you know, sitting by your pool while black, driving while black, sitting in your dormitory while black, sitting in, um, in Starbucks while black. There are things you can't do while black. Like I said, even if you're making six figures. Uh, so those metaphors of that... Uh, but I think, of course, you know, as we walk through this exhibit, we see that that mode of Jim Crow has passed us, thank God. But the question of reparations, mm-hmm. I would say that you should keep your eye on two cases. There's one where countries in the Caribbean are suing Britain for reparations and slavery. Okay? Also... If you're really interested, also go to look. The University of Glasgow in Scotland uh, last week uh, issued a report um, looking at how, the uni- how 
Scotland had profited from the slave trade um, and tobacco and other things. And they're about to have a discussion. And they put a dollar figure on it, how much the university made. They put a dollar figure on it. And they're about to have this discussion. Uh, uh, my sense, you know, I've written, I've gone back and forth in this over the years. 20, 20 years ago, 20, I wrote a column saying I thought that um, the idea of reparations um, was politically impractical, you know, because um, for many reasons. Uh, for example, I mean, even though my family suffered in slavery, uh, I am, a, by all standards, a wealthy person. I'm wealthier than most Americans. So I don't think that I'm entitled to anything. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm entitled to my opinion, <laughs> but, but nothing else. What, do you, your, mean, do you mean the fake news? <laughs> yeah. So, no, so what, but, what's your, uh, I what's your the sense idea of reparations is kind of funny because if you think about the history of reparations, it goes right back to enslaved people, mm-hmm. right? Uh, when indentured servants, you talked about people who said, you know, indentured servitude was worse than slavery. Not really. Um, there were certain similarities. Mm-hmm. They were both unfree forms of labor, but, you know, you it was not lifetime or inheritable except maybe for a, for a few uh, but when indentured servants in colonial America became free, they got freedom dues. Sometimes a bit of land. That stopped, but sometimes livestock, sometimes grain. Um, so when enslaved people uh, wanted land, you know, they were going back to a very old tradition mm-hmm. of freedom dues. Right. And they never got freedom wow. dues. You know, the 40 acres in a mule Sherman. that Sherman gave. That was taken away by Johnson. Mm-hmm. And abolitionists kept saying, we keep talking about compensation to slaveholders for their lost property. Right. The right to property of the slaveholders versus the right to liberty of slaves. We never think of the generations of unpaid labor. But as I think it was Harry Tubman who said, if white fo- folk gave us everything they owed, they wouldn't have enough left to seed. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you think about reparations and you think about... Um, how central enslaved labor was Mm -hmm. to the national wealth of this country. You know, slave-grown cotton is the largest item of export from the United States before the Civil War. Its value exceeds the value of all other items of export from the United States. So it's central, not just to regional wealth, but to the national wealth. You know, the Lords of the Loom and the Lords of the Lash. All those New England cotton textile mills, they're getting their cotton from the South. So, you know, if you think about reparations in that broad sense, you know, we are really talking about an immense problem. Um, This is not even comparable to what Germany had to pay uh, the state of Israel Mm -hmm. in reparations for the Holocaust. If you think about slavery and the slave trade, it would be an immense amount. I think the least we can do, Mm -hmm. perhaps is to do things that, you know, um, universities have started doing, uh, like Georgetown, that mm-hmm. whole, whole slave sale that saved uh, the university. Now they're offering admissions, et cetera. But these are, there's really, I mean, I can't think of any reparation mm-hmm. that would be enough. What do you all know we... the Georgetown story? Uh, jo- yeah. Georgetown, was, uh, Times had a several editorials about yeah. it. George, Georgetown, um, uh, when, and it's the... the, the Proceeding the, the institution before it became Georgetown University, um, Georgetown Institution was in was in Hock, and they sold uh, several hundred, I think, enslaved people. 
Um, generally speaking, at that period of time, we didn't know the names of enslaved people. But as such Jesuits were such fastidious record keepers, they kept the names of these people. They sold them into, I think they sold them into sugar in Louisiana. Uh, and they kept the names of these people so that we can trace their descendants now. And Georgetown is offering, I think, uh, legacy admission to those people. Uh, but, you know, in fact, they did, um, they did do that. Uh, here's a good question. Um, how does the Black Lives Matter movement fit into the broader struggle for equal rights? What do you think will be the lasting impact of that movement? You know, I think the Black Lives Matter at least did bring attention to an ongoing and a very old problem. And this is the problem of the criminalization of blackness, mm -hmm. right? Uh, when black people uh, are killed and shot at with impunity uh, for, you know, all kinds of reasons, uh, suspected of doing something, not being in the right place, whatever, uh, I, I think it was an important movement in bringing attention to this way, it's a basic human right. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, it's there in the exhibit, and I immediately thought of Black Lives Matter. You know, we have a right to our lives. Mm -hmm. If I'm convicted of a crime, bring me before a court of law and convict me properly. And even there, we know the biases within the criminal justice system. But I think this, this, this uh, uh, literally, there seemed to be a spate of shootings. Of, of, of black people, whether by law enforcement authorities, but also sometimes by, uh, you know, like in the Trayvon Martin case, mm -hmm. you know, somebody who just takes the law in their hands. That happens too. And so it's, I, I think it was an extremely important movement and continues to be. Well, because it say, drew attention to a, to a deep problem. I would say problem. it's true. I would say it's true. Yeah. It's, uh, it, what, it, it is, remains a important movement, but in the 2014, 2015, 2016, it was sort of emerging. Uh, it was quite striking to me um, as a person of my age because I hadn't seen uh, black and white people engaging in public uh, protests together for a long time around mm -hmm. the issue of civil rights. I hadn't seen it. And uh, a lot of these marches, you know, were really thoroughly integrated marches and something we really hadn't seen since, you know, we were young, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it was quite surprising. And I think that uh, it, 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 it had, this is the impact it has had. Um, before, and black, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement working together with social media, right? Now, if you're in Michigan or if you're in Texas and somewhere, or, and an officer takes out a gun, kills an unarmed person, completely unjustified manner, you now have to take that seriously as a police official. You now have to understand that everyone's going to see it, um, that more and more people are going to be, want to be upset by it, and that you really have to be seen to be stopping a situation in which people's lives are taken wantonly and for no reason. So that, I have to tell you, itself, from 2014 to now, is an outcome of the Black Lives Matter movement. No question about it. Um, no question about it. And the, just the other day, we had this thing in Texas where a police officer walks into the wrong apartment and kills the occupant, the mm -hmm. black occupant. Mm -hmm. We don't know what that's... I don't know if you follow that case. Mm -hmm. As a, uh, a police officer, I think it's Dallas, comes into her apartment building. Uh, a, a, a 
appears, tells after the fact that she got off the elevator at the wrong floor and opened, tried to get into the wrong apartment. She saw a person that she thought it was her apartment. She killed him. So, but that, so they finally fired her. It took three days before they, um, before they um, uh, even arrested her. Yeah. But that's the impact of that. Yeah, and in the case of Ferguson, they found it's not just, you know, the random shootings of black people, but they found that the entire town was built uh, their revenues for their for their local government for the police was built on criminalizing black people right. on literally preying on the population that they were supposed to protect through fines through Bas- all kinds basically they were stopping it, people it and, exposed and they were funding the court system the police department exactly. by fining people for traffic yeah. violations Which now is, this this is very interesting yeah. now we yeah. we're moving forward to the 20th yeah. century here just out of what was the reception a birth of, birth of a Nation when it was shown at the White House. Shocked that Woodrow Wilson showed this film. My friend. Yeah. Um, Woodrow Wilson, uh, despite having come out of Princeton, or, you know, Princeton was, of course, had long associations with the South. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he was a finishing school for, for, the, for the children of slave owners. They mm-hmm. often brought their, cho- their slaves with them to Princeton, sometimes left them when they left, which is how you got the black community at Princeton. Um, Woodrow Wilson, I think, is a really good time to, to study him, study his presidency. Woodrow Wilson, in my reckoning, and I'm not a historian, I just play one on the New York Times editorial board. Uh, but Woodrow Wilson, in my view, was, in fact, um, the first confederate in the 20th century to take control of government. And Woodrow Wilson... He, he, he resegregated the federal workforce. Um, he fired a whole generation of black professionals out of the postal service, decimated the black middle class. Uh, he fired, when they had uh, printers and engravers in government, all the skilled labor on the government went out in um, the Wilson administration. And he, in fact, he, he did, in fact, he crippled the black middle class in America. And there's a couple of books about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah. but uh, and I, if you email me, I'll send you the titles to them. Uh, but I would say that, which good place to tie this up. Yeah. If, you know, if you're black in America and you're conscious of history, you are well aware that the courts, that the government, that the president, Woodrow Wilson, could not be counted on to defend your rights and to elevate you to to the status of human being in this country. That, in fact, you had to keep agitating. You had to keep fighting because these institutions in themselves um, were intermittently corrupt and racist and intermittently actively hostile toward black interests, and that's what this exhibit shows. Mm -hmm. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.